session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session with Dr. Fadi Tulakwi. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tulakwi, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, the studio number 310-441-0555. Before I get started with the book from this past week, I wanted to announce the book for next week. And actually, I'm going to announce the book for the next two weeks because I'm not going to be doing live shows next week. I'm going to be out of town. So I'm going to be doing live shows again on October 1st, two weeks from today. I will do a show Wednesday, but I won't be doing a show next week. So the book of the week for this week, which I'll talk about in two weeks, I know that's a little bit confusing, but I want to do one book on Monday, one book on Wednesday of that week. So the first one is How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. How to Change Your Mind, What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. And this was a book recommended to me by my brother Parham. He tends to recommend really good books to me, and this one seems really interesting. It's one I've wanted to read uh, for a short while now, so I'm glad to get to read it and share that with you on October 1st. And then on the Wednesday of that week, I'll talk about the book, for the next week. I know it's a little confusing, but that book is going to be The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Blank. And I can't say that last word starts with an F. Subtle Art of Not Giving a Blank, A Counterintuitive Approach to Living a Good Life by Mark Manson. So I'll be sharing that book on October 3rd, Wednesday. And also, if you go to my Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook, you'll see that I've posted these two books and the two books that will follow it, some listeners had told me, and I think it was a good idea to post the books in advance to give people a chance to maybe order them and read them with me. And it's hard to do that when I announce it the week of. So thank you for those suggestions. Um, And also speaking of suggestions, uh, that book, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Blank, was um, recommended to me by KK. Thank you for that recommendation, KK. Looking forward to reading that book also and talking about that October 3rd. All right, so that was a lot of book talk, but let's talk about the book from this past week that I'll talk about tonight, and that is Contagious, Why Things Catch On by Jonah Berger, Contagious. And so this book was by um, a marketing professor at Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, Jonah Berger, and he was looking at trying to understand why certain things go viral. Why do some things catch on and spread like wildfire and other messages don't get very far? Or products, ideas, whatever it might be. And he um, has done a lot of research on these issues. And he actually mentions how Tipping Point, a book by Malcolm Gladwell, in some ways um, definitely relates to this in his book. Maybe you can say even builds 
on that or as a different way of looking at it. Um, but he has looked at this idea of what makes something go viral, why do some things spread, and why do others not. And he's come up with six principles, and as he calls them, steps, because they each stand for one letter with two Ps and steps, which I'll talk about today, that he says are the six principles that help explain why some things, some ideas, products, videos, whatever it might be, uh, go viral while others do not. So let me go through those six things that he talks about or those six principles. So the first one is social currency. So basically, social currency is this idea that we like to share things that make us look good, make us look cool. And maybe before I even get into that, I should mention that um, he talks about how we tend to think the reason why something gets spread or that people um, share an idea is mostly through social media or online. And of course, that does happen, but word of mouth is even more powerful or more important than just social media or advertising, even though we think of advertising as a way for a product to be spread, we know that it can be helpful, but without word of mouth, it won't go as far, or word of mouth can make it go much further. Because if you see an advertisement, you think, okay, well, obviously they're paying to promote this product. But when a friend tells you, hey, I used this and it was really good, or I saved money doing this, you should definitely do it too, that's going to go a lot further. And even that's why you see a lot of advertisements now where they'll say, these are not actors, these are actual people experiencing this product and see how much they liked it because that leads us to believe, well, it's more genuine rather than an actor who is paid to say this product is good or they enjoyed this product. So actually word of mouth goes a lot further than um, you might think. So we tend to share things in the first principle, social currency, that make us look good, that make us look cool. He talks about a bar in New York called Please Don't Tell. That's really cool. The way you get into it is it's in the back of a certain restaurant, which itself I think is kind of like underground. But then you go to that restaurant and you have to pick up this old phone and dial a number and then the bar picks up. And then you actually get in through a trap door. So you can't even see the bar from the outside at all or even from this restaurant. But a trap door opens up and you go to the bar. So, of course, if you went to this bar, if you were able to get in, if you knew how to get in and just to have that experience, that's something you're going to tell other people about. Rather than we just went to a regular bar and had a drink, you say, oh, we had to go to this bar. It's top secret. You had to go downstairs. We had to call this special phone. A trap door opened and we got to go back and enjoy the bar. So clearly that's going to be something you're more likely to share because it makes you look good. So you, if you want to make your message, your product, whatever it is, something that's more likely to spread using that principle, you want to make it something that gives people social currency, that they're going to feel like they're going to look good or look cool sharing it with other people. And we tend to share things that make us look good. If you went somewhere and it wasn't that good or if you got a bad deal, you're probably not going to tell people unless you're really angry about it. But if you got a really good deal or if you know you're going to look cool by sharing something, you're more likely to do that. The second one is triggers. Um, as he puts it, top of the mind, tip of the tongue. The more likely you are to think of something or the more things that make you think of a product or an idea, the more likely you are to talk about it. And he shares this example that 
if we asked you, what do people talk about more, Disney World or Cheerios? You would think, well, clearly Cheerio, uh, sorry, Disney World, because that's so exciting. It's so fun. When people go there, they have a great time. So, of course, that's going to be more talked about. But when you even look online, you see that people mention Cheerios more than they mention Disney World because it's something that gets triggered almost every day, especially for people who eat Cheerios every day. They're eating it and seeing it, and they have breakfast every day, so it comes to mind. It's It gets triggered a lot, whereas Disney World is something that maybe people go once a year if they go, and so it's not going to come up as often or frequently. So actually, you want something that gets triggered a lot. Uh, he even shares a campaign that Kit Kat, the candy bar, did, where they said Kit Kat and coffee. And there is the alliteration of Kit Kat and coffee, but also because coffee is something that people have, some people several times a day, of course, it's going to make it more likely to get reminded that might make them think of this association. So if something gets triggered more often, it's more likely that people will be able to or will talk about it and that that idea will spread. So that's the T in steps. The next one is emotion. And that would make sense that if things evoke emotion, we will talk about it. So as he puts it, when we care, we share. And he looked at if, is it any emotion that's going to do that? And he found that it wasn't the case. And so first he thought, or there's a kind of thinking that, well, maybe it's positive emotions make us share and negative emotions make us not share. But they found that that wasn't the case because people were sharing articles, for example, that made them very angry or made them anxious or you can say very fearful. They were still sharing those things. So what they were able to recognize is that there are some emotions we can say positive or negative in how they feel, but also we can talk about low arousal or high arousal. So low arousal means physiologically not much happens as far as your response. And so things like sadness, uh, if it's a low-key sadness, you kind of get more calm. You don't get have a high level of arousal. Or even contentment, which is a positive emotion, you don't have higher arousal. But we do have things like anger, anxiety, and fear. Those are high arousal emotions, even though they're negative. Or things like excitement or amusement, something that makes you laugh. Or this feeling of awe, sometimes when you see something unbelievable. These are emotions that are high arousal. And they found that people were more likely to share things and share articles or videos that created high arousal emotion. So it seems that not just any emotion is more likely to lead to something being or going viral. The next one we get to is the first P, which is for public. And that means that it has to be something that can be seen, has to be visible. So he shares the idea of, for example, people donate to different charities, but we see huge discrepancies in how much different types of charities raise. And one uh, interesting movement was the Movember movement. We're getting close to November, but you maybe have seen this where men in November, they grow a mustache and it's to raise awareness for men's health or men's cancers, uh, things like prostate cancer. And this actually really took off. And it, it started in Australia with a small group of people um, who started this movement. And now it's spread all around the world. But the idea, when you look at this book, is that it made something like thinking about 
or donating money and bringing awareness to men's cancer very public because when you see people with a mustache, you'll notice it. If you have a friend who never has had a mustache before and now they have it, it's public and people are going to see that and so they're going to talk about this idea and it brings awareness in a very um, easy way. So things that are not public can't be seen and won't be talked about as much, of course, but the more public it is, it is easier for your idea to spread. The second P in the steps principles is practical value. And that kind of makes sense. Basically, as he puts it, news you can use. So if you learn something and you know your friend or colleague or other people will get something out of it, you're more likely to tell them, hey, like I was saying before, you can save money by doing this. Or, you know, they found out this is something, these kind of articles, you'll see them a lot on, for example, Facebook. Um, this toy company has recalled this baby's toy because it could be hurtful to your kid. So make sure don't buy this or if you have it, get rid of it. We, we know that it's practical uh, information for people to know. And so we're more likely to share it because we know it has that value to it. So that one makes a lot of intuitive sense. And the last principle he has in the steps that he talks about, um, the six principles that make things catch on, is stories. So basically the idea that when you create a story or narrative and within it you have the message you're trying to give, whether it's a product, an idea, uh, whatever it is, this makes it much more likely for things to spread. Because naturally humans, we are storytellers and we tell stories. And if you look at even famous stories throughout history, and he talks about the Trojan horse story, um, we know that the story itself might be entertaining, but within the story, there's lots of messages that we are sharing in that story. So he says that if you really want to get your message across, try to create a narrative that includes your message, your product, whatever it might be. And the book does, you know, even in how I say that last sentence, he talks a lot about how to make your message or your product catch on or contagious. So you feel this very marketing feeling. And I mean, he is a professor of marketing at Wharton School um, at the University of Pennsylvania, so it makes sense. But there was a lot of that how to make your product sell feeling that I had reading the book um, and what you can do to make your product more likely to be contagious. And, and so in that way, it was interesting to see these principles. Um, it, it was very simple at times, and maybe that's good. So I didn't feel like now I know exactly why something goes viral, but it does give you some understanding of some of the important principles that might make a difference and make uh, you understand why something might become viral. As we always see, some new video this week is probably going viral, and you might see that it incorporates these principles. Um, and sometimes, as he mentions, of course, it's not that these principles are just uh, totally separate. They can relate because something that might make you look cool to talk about might also be practical to share with someone else or might bring about emotions in the person you, you tell or in, in yourself. So they definitely can relate, but you can see how these principles themselves each contribute to things going viral um, in this day and age where we see that happening. That part was interesting for me to learn a bit more about that. So that was the book Contagious, Why Things Catch On by Jonah Berger. And again, the book of the week or the next two, it's going to be How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan and The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Blank by Mark 
Manson. Uh, we've reached our first commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dukwakwi. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I wanted to talk now about insecurities, but specifically how our insecurities or our own issues can affect our relationships. So to begin with, all of us have some issues, psychological issues that we are dealing with or still working on. Even the healthiest of us psychologically still have some issues, just like no one has perfect physical health. No one has perfect mental health, and we're not expected to. We're human beings, and because of that, we know that means we're imperfect. Um, so we have to understand that we all have issues, and they can definitely affect our romantic relationships, which is what I wanted to focus on today. And there's various aspects or ways that we can look at this issue that I wanted to talk about. So to begin with, even before you enter a relationship, but even if you are in one now, what we want to do each as individuals is understand our own issues, our own insecurities. And so insecurities, by that I mean things that we are, we can say, overly sensitive about. It could be something personal, like your height or weight or how you look or your education um, financially or something else about yourself in that way, that kind of uh, insecurity. It could be how you feel in relationships, but we all have something. It could be jealous, those types of things. We want to be aware of those insecurities or our relationship issues, things like, and in this way they overlap, maybe jealousy, or if you had issues with your parents related to trust or abandonment or um, were not allowed to talk about feelings or were made to feel bad about your feelings. Whatever it is, we want to understand our own issues what's going on for us and this is not just for relationships but overall for our own benefit in living our life you might think that you don't have any issues or you might think what's the point of knowing about these things well the point is that if you don't know about them they're going to affect your life without you being aware of them or knowing what's happening or being able to make things the best that you can make even though you have these issues so we want to know our own insecurities, our own psychological issues or things that we're dealing with. That knowledge and awareness is very important. Now, of course, we don't want to just stop there at just knowing. We want to work on them. Just like if you find out, oh, I have high cholesterol, you don't just say, okay, I have high cholesterol. Let me just go back to living life exactly as I was before. You say, oh, I have high cholesterol. Let me make adjustments to my diet and exercise or maybe even take a medication if I have to, to help deal with it. So similarly with our emotional issues, our insecurities, our uh, psychological issues, whatever it is that we're dealing with, we don't want to just know, we want to then work on it. And of course, one of the best ways to do that is through therapy to work on those issues that you have. That's the best way we can do it. But of course, you can do things like read books, uh, reflect yourself, talk to others, get advice, meditate, 
those types of things can help as well. But still, I don't see any better way than to work on your insecurities or psychological issues than to go to therapy and to work on them in that way. And we're responsible to ourselves to do that. If we care about ourselves and love ourselves, we should take care of ourselves in that way. But also, we have to know that these issues that we have are going to affect the people around us, our loved ones. If you're in a romantic relationship, absolutely, it's going to affect your partner. And then very importantly, when you're a parent, it's going to affect your kids. Consciously or unconsciously, your issues are going to affect your kids. If you're insecure about something, if you have unresolved issues about your own childhood that are significant that you're not aware of, you're going to get triggered by your kids and you're going to somehow make them feel it, whether it's by compensating and doing the opposite of what you got or by giving them the same thing you got somehow you're going to give that to your kids. But again, I want to today focus on romantic relationships because here we have more of an equal relationship with your kids. It's 100% on you to work on yourself the best you can to let's say minimize this effect because it's virtually impossible to say none of your issues are going to impact your parenting and what your kids experience at all. That's probably not realistic. That's aspirational, what you should strive towards, but it's probably not realistic to think it's going to be 100%, but it's all on you. Your kids don't owe you anything in this way, and your kids just experience what you give them. They're not playing a part in this. But in a romantic relationship, you are two partners working together, and that way you're, it's, much, it's a 50-50 type of a relationship, and you both can play a part. So first you have to know your own issues and be working on them. It's not enough just to say, this is my issue, deal with it. That's not fair to your partner. And it's not, def as, it's not fair to you either, but it's definitely not fair to your partner. Your issues are something you need to work on. But let's look at the different aspects of these things. So the first one is communicating these things to your partner. Now this can even start happening earlier in your relationship, early in dating. But like all things, it, it builds with time. The closer you get to someone, the more time you spend, the longer you're dating or in a relationship, the more you should be telling them about yourself and letting them know about these things. And one of the things we need to talk about are our issues or what we recognize as our weaknesses, insecurities, even sometimes you might say, things that could make it difficult to date you, or let's say even a red flag, someone might see as a red flag. And we need to actually share these things with each other. And many people have a hard time doing this for a few reasons. One is people in general don't like to talk about the bad parts of themselves anyway. And it, it might be a generalization, but there's definitely some truth that men have a harder time being vulnerable than women in general. And so they might not want to, they don't, I don't have any weaknesses. I'm okay. There's nothing psychologically wrong with me. I don't have any problems uh, because weakness might be seen as not masculine. They don't want to say they have an insecurity or some kind of weakness in themselves. And so, no, there's nothing there. So again, that's why first we have to be able to acknowledge and work on it, but we have to be also willing then to communicate it and not be afraid that if I share a weakness, either my partner is one not going to love me anymore because they're going to think I'm weak or not good enough or think I'm broken or have problems or two, something that some people worry about, they're going to use it against me. So if I tell my girlfriend or if I tell my boyfriend, this is my weakness, he or she is then going to use that against me 
if we get in a fight or if they want to get me to do something, they'll know they can manipulate me with that thing. They know my sensitive spot. And this is a very unfortunate mindset to have that's going to make it very difficult for someone to have a good relationship. Because in order to have a good relationship, you have to be able to trust your partner. And so either you have to be willing to trust them and also you have to pick a partner that you feel like you feel is trustworthy or else you can't do any of those things when it comes to opening up with each other. Life becomes more of a war and a battle rather than a journey you go on together, something where you are supporting each other, loving each other, working together. You in some ways are always opponents and that's not going to work long term in a relationship to create a healthy and happy marriage. So you have to be willing to trust your partner to open up and share with them. You know, this is this is my sensitivity. I know I can feel really sensitive about this or I have I have an abandonment issue. And so if I don't hear from you, maybe I won't feel good or I have a jealousy issue or I've had issues with people doing this in my past relationships. And we have to communicate that with our partner. And as the partner listening to this, and of course it should be both ways, so both partners are going to have issues and they both should communicate it to one another. But now as the one receiving this, it, it can be hard to deal with at times. So to begin with, of course, I would hope you're not thinking of how you can use this to your advantage, but you do want to be aware of being sensitive to this issue. Now, we want to be open with our partners. We want to be able to talk to them about everything and share what's on our mind. But we do want to be sensitive to what we know they are sensitive to. So if your partner tells you this is an insecurity for me, you might be aware of how you bring up that topic or how you talk about that conversation or bringing it up in public. So let's say your partner says, I feel insecure about my education, that I didn't go very far or people around me are so much more educated than me, then when you're at a dinner party, you're not going to bring this issue up unless, of course, you're trying to hurt your partner. You're going to be mindful that this is something my partner doesn't like. The comparison I make is like if you know your partner has a bum knee, if they have a bad knee, you're not going to hit them on their knee or ask them to do something that you know is going to make them have to exert their knee a lot. You're aware of that pain or that weakness that they have and you're sensitive to it. You're going to be mindful of making sure they don't have to feel that pain because you care about one another. You don't want them to feel pain. So as a partner, you want to be mindful and sensitive about this issue. Now, when it gets difficult is if that insecurity, let's say, gets triggered or especially if it's relational, something like jealousy. And this is where it can be difficult because as the partner receiving it, it can be hard not to take it personally. So, for example, if your, your partner is jealous and even to the point of paranoid, it can be tough to not take that as a judgment on your character, that they're judging you for being untrustworthy or being unfaithful or that you're lying or hiding or whatever it is they're thinking. It can be very hard not to take that personally. But we do have to do our best to recognize that it's about them, not about us, as hard as that can be. Now, I'm not in any way saying that this means the other person is off the, their hook and they can just do and say whatever they want if it's related to their insecurity. Absolutely not. But we do have to try to remember that when it is our partner's issue, when it is their insecurity, it's more about them than it is about us. 
And of course, we know that most of the time, the way that people interact with us tells us much more about them than it does about us. But especially when it comes to someone's insecurity, when we know that's the case, we have to recognize, okay, this is his or her weak spot, weak area. I understand that it's not about me or I necessarily didn't do something to trigger this. I'm still going to be sensitive in how we talk and communicate about it, but I'm going to try my best to recognize that this is not somehow a judgment on me. This is my partner's issue that they have, and let me try my best to be there with them. And I understand in even saying this that it sounds very idealistic, and as a human being, you're going to have your own reactions to what they're going through. And of course, what can end up happening in a lot of relationships is that our insecurities can uh, be inner can have a relationship with each other. So one person has issues with jealousy and the other person has issues with being controlled. And so then you have fireworks because one person wants more assurance from that person and the other person hates to feel that they're being controlled and they might even react to that and then it gets really bad. So in, in reality, it is hard to do these things, but it's something we want to try to be mindful of, to try to create this in our relationships. So you want to be aware that this is not about me, it's about them. But then the partner who is, let's say, we're dealing with their insecurity, they can also communicate to the partner, whether it's after the fact or even if they can during, that I recognize that at least some of this is about me and this is my issue. I'm insecure about this and I recognize I'm feeling this, but I know it might not be about what's going on. It's about me. And you can even have that realization that, for example, I'm feeling jealous, but I know I probably don't have anything to worry about. I'm still feeling something and I want you to know. And you can even sometimes apologize. I'm sorry that I'm putting you through this because I am feeling this and it's hard for me to shake the feeling, but I understand that this could be and probably is about my issue more than it is about you doing something wrong. And you can have that kind of communication. So this is why things like awareness and communication can be so important. If I recognize my own weaknesses and insecurities, I can then communicate them to my partner. My partner can then use that knowledge and awareness in how they interact with me and making sure to avoid that if they can. But then even if it does come up, they can hopefully recognize that they don't have to take it personally and they can create that distance between feeling judged or feeling that it's about them. And then also I myself can communicate to my partner, I'm aware that this is the issue that my insecurity surrounds. So maybe it's more about me than you. And I'm sorry if I'm pulling you into my own issues and I will continue to work on this, hopefully in my own therapy or whatever else it is that you're doing. But I'm going to continue to work on this because I don't want to hurt you and I don't want to hurt us. And I value us and you and I want to try everything I can to make this work and to not make this an issue. So we want to communicate about these things and make it okay for both people to share. And you should be able to share and talk about these things. You should know your partner's insecurities, weak spots, sensitivities, things that are hard for them to talk about, things that make them feel bad, things that bring up things from their past, whatever it might be. You want to know these things and it only can happen if you communicate. So we want to communicate about these things so that These things are going to cause issues in your relationships. That's just part of how it is when two human beings get together. We both bring our own baggage. We want to have dealt with our baggage the best we can before we enter the relationships, but we're still going to have some. But if we talk about it, we can try to minimize the damage or the negative effects that it has and see how we can actually, even through those insecurities, get closer rather than 
further apart or damage the relationship. All right, we're going into our last commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. You're listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwe. We'll be right back. To end the show today, I wanted to talk about a very serious and sad and heavy topic, but one that is inevitably a part of life uh, because life does end. Life does end with death. And that's something that we all, of course, individually will experience, but also will experience in our lives through friends, family, loved ones um, who will die. And someone here at the radio station was talking about someone close to them who had passed, who I won't get into, who just to, to respect that privacy, but also I talked to a few other people um, recently about grieving and going through that process. So just wanted to talk about this important issue again, something that's very difficult to deal with. Um, and when we go through a loss, it is painful because it's supposed to be painful. And we have to accept that. So often we try to resist pain or avoid pain, deny pain. Or if we see someone who's hurting, we think our job is to make them stop feeling the pain. But when someone is going through something like losing a loved one, a son, daughter, husband, wife, friend, parent to death, they in essence almost need to be sad. They have to go through that. It's like when you get injured, you need some rest, you need to recover. And this is a huge psychological or relational injury that we experience. And we need to allow ourselves that space to heal. And unfortunately, we don't often, and people around us sometimes don't give us that space. And we see what happens when people don't allow themselves to feel the pain that they need in order to heal. Sometimes the easiest way or the best way to heal is to actually feel the pain. We, we think of being sad as something negative or even wasteful. People sometimes think to be sad is a waste of time because it brings you down or it doesn't allow you to do things or it doesn't feel good or it makes people around you not feel good. And so most people think of it as a waste of time. And I've even heard that before, that life is short, why be sad? And it's not that my argument right now is to say be sad you should always be sad or it's better to be sad but it's that we have to allow ourselves to feel what we're feeling and to go through the process of feeling whatever it is that we're experiencing someone could also say life is short never sleep because it's better to be awake you can't do anything when you're sleeping so always be awake whether you have to take drugs to do that whatever you have to do just never sleep but no one would actually agree with that we know that we have to let our bodies heal and rest and actually to have a good life you have to let yourself sleep to get that and similarly to be psychologically healthy we have to let ourselves sometimes be sad or feel whatever it is we're feeling and when you go through a big loss you're going to feel sad you need to let yourself feel that and sometimes people say well you shouldn't be sad because uh, that'll make the other people sad or it makes even the person that died sad 
you know, people will say that, or he or she is in a better place. And one note about those types of things, uh, very often people say, well, I'm going to the funeral or I'm going to go see a friend who recently lost a loved one. What do I say? What am I supposed to say? Or I don't know what to say. And because of that, sometimes people avoid seeing the person or talking to them because we feel such a pressure to say the right thing or to say the thing that's going to cheer them up. We're supposed to make them happy. But that's not at all your role when you're supporting someone going through any kind of loss, but especially a death that is very painful to deal with. You're not supposed to make them happy because they're not supposed to even be happy yet. They don't need to be. Yes, you might go in, in the course of spending time with them. You might share some really nice laughs. But overall, they still need to go through a process of grieving and being sad. So take the pressure off of yourself and that you have to say something motivational or inspirational or change their mood completely or make them happy. Again, you don't even have to make them happy or you should focus on not making them necessarily happy but letting them feel whatever they're feeling. But also what people tend to say is that what hurts more when people tell them things or when they talk to people after they go through losing a loved one is that people said too much. That someone tries to, for example, explain away their pain. So they'll tell them things like, oh, you know, they're in a better place, so you should be happy. You shouldn't be sad. Or, you know, when someone loses a kid, which to me is, is so painful, just imagine losing a small child, um, but unfortunately it does happen. But they'll say things like, God needed another angel or God wanted another angel. And to that parent, very often it's like, well, why the heck did God have to take my kid? It doesn't make sense to me and it's not going to make them feel any better. So people often feel that when we say too much, it hurts them rather than if we don't say enough. And they've even done some research on this, that people have said that. But really, you just want to say something very basic, that you're sorry for their loss, your condolences to them and their family. And if you really mean it, that you're there for them if they want, if they need anything or asking them how you can help and leave it at that. You don't need to change their worldview or Give them some spiritual awakening in that moment. That's not required of you and actually might make them more upset. But to someone who's going through it, when you're going through the pain of that loss, it can feel really dark. And that darkness can feel like it's never going to go away. And that could be really tough and really scary. But we know that many people have gone through losses and it's not about coming out of it and completely being out of the darkness. Some losses we never 100% recover from. And that's another thing. People will talk about, well, has he moved on yet? Or has she moved on? Uh, or did they get over it? Even maybe it's more a stronger way of saying it. Have they gotten over it yet? And there's some losses you never get over. And you don't necessarily need to. Going back to the idea of losing a child, I don't expect any mother or father to get over the fact that their five-year-old died. And we shouldn't expect them to. And really what we see is that it's kind of like your heart gets a scar, has a wound, and then a scar might form. So the heart is never exactly the same. It's never going to be as it was before the death or before the loss. Life can go on, and that's what you want to do. You want to live on, not necessarily completely move on or get over it, but you can live on. Life does continue. But the expectation that someone is going to completely be over some kind of significant loss, it can be unrealistic and almost unexpected for most people. Again, when it's that serious of a loss, we can go forward, but it doesn't mean we're going to be completely over 
what has happened or what we have experienced. And so we have to give ourselves that space to grieve and to go through this process. But also as loved ones, we have to be aware that we have to let people go through their process, whatever that might be, and recognize that we have a tendency to want to tell people not to be sad because it's hard for us to see them sad. And because it's hard for us to tolerate our own pain, we think, well, we don't, we can't imagine what they're going through. We try to imagine what they're going through and say, that must be horrible. Let's cheer them up. Let's make them happy. And so you hear people saying things like, don't cry, stop crying. And then even, you know, well, it's been a week or it's been a month. You should stop crying now. And that's one of the most hurtful things you can tell someone that their sadness or their pain is in a way wrong or that they shouldn't be feeling it or they're bad for feeling it, or they should stop because it's making you feel bad. We have to give people that space. And so going back to the idea of what can you do for someone when you see that they've went through a loss, you're not supposed to make them happy because, again, they need to be sad. Just like if your friend breaks their leg, you're not supposed to find a way to get them running tomorrow. You know, they need to rest. They actually need to heal. Similarly here, they're emotionally healing. But what you can do is, well, first of all, ask them what they want. Someone might say, I want to be alone. Someone might say, I want you around. But see what they want. So we have to ask them for what they would think is helpful, not just assume what to do. But a lot of times what people really just want is someone to be there. Because we can't change the circumstances. And that's what sometimes people say, well, why talk about it? Because we can't change it. And of course, with death, that is very true. It's very final. You can't change any the thing that is hurting you as far as bringing that person back. But when we talk about our feelings, it's not just about changing things. It's that we actually know talking about our feelings and expressing our feelings, that itself can change how we feel over time, can help us heal. So what people tend to need more than anything is just your support by being there, just showing up, just being around them. Maybe they just want to be sad, but have you be next to them. And even they've done research looking at, for example, physical pain. And if someone was holding the hand of a loved one, they felt or anticipated less pain than when they weren't holding their hand or were holding the hand of a stranger. So we can't change sometimes life events and circumstances, especially if it's from the past. But we can make it easier for someone or make the pain feel a little bit more bearable by being by their side. So show up for people. Because another thing that people experience is that at the beginning, people were showing up, giving them love and support, but it slowly started to go away. And often it's because people have a hard time going back and seeing someone sad. Or they might feel like, well, they've been sad long enough, now they should get better. Or am I supposed to, again, make them happy, cheer them up, and that's too much pressure. But what people tend to need more than anything is just your presence, just being there, just having that type of support can be the most important thing for them. And people tend to remember who was there for them when they were feeling at their worst, when they were going through some pain. And I was thinking about it today because it got triggered in a conversation, but I still remember certain people that were at my grandmother's funeral, my father's mom, which was, I think, 2001 or two, maybe 2002. So we're talking about 16 years ago. I still remember crying on my dad's shoulder and then taking my head up from his shoulder and seeing one or two of my friends with very solemn, sad faces. And I won't forget that, that they just at least showed up. 
And it's not always comfortable to show up to a funeral or a memorial or to go to someone's house. It's not easy. But those things, those acts of just showing up go a long way. And so I remember those faces from 16, 17 years ago because it was so meaningful. And I realized that's why people go to these things. That's why it matters. So very often in life, and it's not just when we're dealing with someone who's going through the death of a loved one, but in general, just showing up can be a lot. And sometimes we put too much pressure on ourselves that we have to make someone happy or cheer them up or do so much that we do nothing instead. And that's very sad that we're not supporting people around us because we think we have to do so much. So when it comes to supporting your friends or loved ones, just show up and also ask them what they want or need from you. And if you're going through the loss of a loved one, wherever you are in that process of recovery and grief, know that it is a process and that no two people are going to go through it exactly the same, even to the same death, even to the same loss. And that's okay. And that we miss our loved ones because we love them so much. We're social animals and we get connected and attached to each other and we mean a lot to each other. So when you lose someone, it hurts a lot because oftentimes that sadness is a reflection of the, the beauty of the relationship you had with that person. So don't beat yourself up or be hard on yourself if you're still sad about something and don't let other people tell you to stop being sad. You need to heal. You need to go through that grieving process and that's okay. That's what you need to do. If you do need help, it is out there. Get some help because that can help people when they're going through grief. That's hard to get over or get through, I should say. But know that it's part of being human is that when we lose people close to us, it hurts a lot. And we build relationships with people, always risking and always knowing that if we lose that person in whatever way it is, it's going to hurt. But because we value it so much and because we know how wonderful it is to be close to people, we risk it anyway because we know it's worth it. And I'm sure if you ask most people who've lost someone that they love, that they still will think it was worth it to have them in their life in order to, even though they're feeling the pain they're feeling now, it was still worth it. And so that's why we have relationships. That's why we love one another, but that's why it hurts when we lose someone. So give yourself that space to be sad and to go through that process. And if you're going through it right now, I am sorry for your loss and wish you all the best, but know that things can and will get better with time, with healing, and if you need help, ask for it. All right, we've reached the end of tonight's show. Thank you to everyone listening out there and to Amir here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delaqui. Have a wonderful night. Yeah.